Australian True Crime, the nation's leading independent true crime podcast, is hitting the road with our live show. We're coming to Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane this July and tickets will be available starting May 10th at 9.30am sharp. They sold out in two hours last time, so do not dilly-dally. We know the suburbs of Australia are teeming with some of the most intriguing and chilling true crime stories the world has ever heard. Don't miss the chance to dive deeper and get involved with a live Q&A. With over a million and a half downloads monthly, these tickets will sell out. So keep an eye on our social media pages and check the podcast bio for direct links to purchase yours as soon as they're released on Friday, May 10. I can't wait to see you there. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. The producers of this podcast recognize the traditional owners of the land on which it's recorded. They pay respect to the Aboriginal elders past, present and those emerging. The following podcast contains content of a graphic, violent nature and is not suitable for children. With me, it's always been the unsolved cases which get to me the most because of the, the lack of information out there, really. And with Amber's case, it's one of those puzzles. It's a sad case where someone seemingly quite vulnerable, was taken advantage of and then, and then disappeared. This week we hear about one of those cases we should all know much more about. Amber Haig has been on the missing persons list since 2002. At that time she was residing in the New South Wales town of Young with the parents of her former boyfriend, 
They're the last people to report seeing Amber alive. She was 19 years old and the mother of a newborn son whom she left with the older couple. In black and white, it seems pretty straightforward. But as you're about to find out, there's so much more to this case and to everyone involved than meets the eye. This is a story about what goes on in small country towns. What people accept, what people know, what people turn a blind eye to, and how wild rumours can help hide even wilder true stories. This is Australian True Crime with Michelle Laurie and Emily Webb. Come with us as we go beyond the news cycle to find out how people become killers, how people become victims and what happens next. This story was brought to our attention by journalist and former private investigator Sean McMahon, who's now one of the hosts of the True Blue Crime podcast. There's a link in our show notes, of course. And Sean joins us this week to tell us the disturbing story of the disappearance of Amber Haig. We cover Australian cases, just like yourselves, but in a bit of a different style, narrative style. Uh, So I sort of research the cases using public records, court and inquest documents, newspaper articles, novels, docos, all that type of stuff, and and we sort of script it and present it. Uh, I've got a co-host, Chloe, and her background's in communications and mine's in um, private investigation and, and more recently journalism. So I think we sort of... Yeah, we try and bring a, a bit of a different perspective uh, to the case we present and, and we, we sort of bookend it with a bit of personality, but the bulk of the episodes, the facts in the story, and hopefully we manage to strike somewhere between detailed and, and digestible. Well, you certainly do do that. And of course, as true crime podcasters, we all have cases that particularly get under our skin. There's one or two or more that we really want to know more about that we're very passionate about. So mm. what are some of the ones for you, Sean? I think... Anything to do with kids is always a difficult one to sort of tackle. You know, the Mr. Cruel case, uh, which many people know, Jaden Lesky. But, f- you know, for me, overtly poor investigations are another one that sort of get under your skin. So, you know, we always try and highlight the good ones, to be fair, when they come up. But as far as cases go that, you know, have been, I suppose, contentious or, or spoken a lot about, there's one up on the Gold Coast a few years ago. It was uh, the case of... Warina Wright and Gable Tosti, and uh, it was essentially a Tinder date uh, on the Gold Coast, and it went horribly wrong, ended in a tragic death, and the sort of uh, kicker with it all was the audio of the entire date was captured by Gable on his mobile phone. There's a couple of hours worth of audio, so I won't go into you know why for now, but suffice to say it was it was quite disturbing sort of hearing all of that. The case went on to, to be put before a jury and it's got an official verdict on it, but uh, you know, a lot of people still debate what actually happened that night. And we're going to be talking about a case that I'll admit I actually didn't know much at all about, about a young woman called Amber Hay. What's caught your attention particularly about this case? Well, you know, we cover a lot of solved cases generally and it's because we started out as storytelling, you know, not expecting anyone outside of our partners and friends to listen to it. And uh, we sort of weren't investigating things. But uh, as the show evolved, you know, it went down that that path. We kept sort of telling those stories. And But with me, with my background, it's always been sort of the unsolved cases which which get to me the most because of the information that, or the, the lack of information out there, really. And with Amber's case, it's it's one of those puzzles. You know, it's a sad case where someone 
seemingly quite vulnerable was taken advantage of and then and then disappeared. It was in 1982, and she had a, a bit of a difficult relationship at times with her, her mother, Roz. There were periods that they sort of weren't in one another's lives that much. And her father, Jeff, was sort of either out drinking or in jail around this time. She did have a sister named Melissa, who Amber was very fond of, but you know, otherwise it wasn't a particularly stable start for, for Amber. She was in state care for a time too. Her friends and family described her as quiet, caring. She was good-hearted, cheeky smile, very generous, loyal, but you know, sort of very trusting as well, you know, sort of bordering on, on naive at times, some people said. I think to go along with that, she had some intellectual or learning disabilities. She was developmentally delayed. She could do things day-to-day, her day-to-day tasks and, and, and work and whatnot, but she was uh, vulnerable and easily led, according to her mum. So uh, she also had epilepsy and was diagnosed with epilepsy. Despite, you know, these turbulences, which, you know, we see in in many families every day, you know, her mum, Rose, and her sister, Melissa, you know, they cared for her greatly and have been deeply affected by whatever's happened to Amber. Amber was young when she disappeared and she was also a young mum. So what was happening just before she disappeared, like, who were the people in her life, you know, what was life like for her? So she moved to a place called uh, Kingsvale, which is near Young, inland, uh, sort of southwest of Sydney, New South Wales, heading down towards Wagga Wagga. She was around 14 when she when she went there around this time. She was living with her great-aunt Stella. She'd gotten a job cherry-picking, big on cherries in Young. I don't know if you've been to Young, Emily, but uh, yeah, it's the cherry capital of Australia, so I'm told. So she was there. There's lots of wheat farms too, big wheat belt region. Amber was was quite settled and, and happy there for some time with Stella, and, and she met a, a young guy named Robbie Jeeves at some point. They got along well, uh, and Amber moved away to Mount Isa, and they sort of fell out of touch after this, or at least didn't keep contact you know, the way they had previously. Uh, but then suddenly Amber was back in Kingsvale, moving into Robbie's house, which was a surprise to him. Robert Jeeves Jr. actually spoke to the media, I think it might have been a current affair, about Amber and his father in 2017. Amber moved away. She moved to Mount Isa with another relative. And I used to ring her up every night. And then... She started talking to me, Dad, on the phone. Okay, um, my dad wants to talk to you. <laughs> yeah. Amber. And I told her that, you know, she's miles away, so, you know, we're breaking up pretty much. And um, I got with another girl, and my dad kept talking to her on the phone. It wasn't long before Robbie was told Amber would be moving in. So I spoke to my mother about it. And her reply was, you know what your father's like. So, yeah, he gets his way no matter what. What was your father's relationship like with Amber? Well, I thought she was just living there, just boarding in the spare room or whatever. That's That was my understanding of it. This was around 2001. Amber would have been around 18 at this time. So Robert and Anne Jeeves had recently had a baby named Emma, but sadly she died at birth. And Amber, after moving in, went on to fall pregnant herself. And it was uh, January the 21st, 2002, she gave birth to uh, a baby boy, Royce, at the Young Hospital. 
and subsequent tests confirmed that Robert Jeeves was the father. So he was 42 at this time. So her family were pretty concerned, I think it's fair to say. Uh, you know, Amber's in a, a vulnerable position. There's reports from family members that, you know, Amber had alleged being tied up, uh, assaulted and even videotaped by the Jeeves. Some people even alleged seeing marks on, on Amber's sort of arms and things where she'd been restrained. Her family also said that Amber seemed a bit jumpy on the phone. They were often talking to her on, on the phone from a distance at this time. So she was a bit jumpy in the time after Royce's birth. She'd been concerned about actually passing away during birth as well. Uh, I think pretty concerned about you know her health and some of her conditions and, and what might happen to Royce if she didn't survive. So she'd even written some sort of documentation, you know, maybe maybe a will of sorts with a social worker and asked her uh, her aunt Trish to care for Royce should the, the worst happen. And she was quite worried that Robert G's might try and take custody of her boy. So after that, she's moved out of the Jeeves farmhouse into a flat in Young itself. So she was doing it, doing her best with the bub, trying to make it all work. But during 2002, she reported to social workers that uh, Robert Jeeves had actually stolen a bassinet from her flat. It was unclear to me if police were notified of that, but the social workers did intervene and they replaced the bassinet and helped to change the locks and things like that. So the waters also seemed to be a bit muddy by reports that the Jeeves were financially supporting Amber in, in some fashion. I think Robert might have paid the bond for her flat and reportedly he stayed there overnight on occasion. That might have complicated things. I think Robert even made a report against one of the social workers as well for sort of interfering, you know, the internal politics and, and getting told to sort of back off and, and things like that. Yeah, that might have all played a part. Were Amber and, and little Royce, were they on the radar of social services for any particular reason? I'm not sure for what reason they were on the radar. Don't know whether that was perhaps due to... Amber having been in the care of the state before, maybe her age, or just the fact Robert Jeeves has, has a bit of a past, so perhaps that played a factor. Tell us a bit more about Robert and Anne Jeeves. Yes, he's an interesting uh, fellow, Mr Jeeves. A colourful past, probably, to say the least. But, you know, nothing that's, that's stuck to him. He's a Teflon-coated wheat farmer, machinist, fruit picker, bit of a violent bloke uh, when he drinks, according to his son, Robbie, that's... Uh, it was not with the girls. It was in 1986, actually, when I was born, Emily. There was two 13-year-old girls who went missing from Young, the Young Township. Just didn't come home from school one day. Two weeks later, they mysteriously showed up at this wheat silo on the Jeeves family farm where they'd spent the past fortnight, apparently. So one of the girls alleged that Robert Jeeves sexually assaulted her. The other girl contradicted that story and sort of refuted those claims and said it didn't happen. So essentially the case collapsed. He had some assault and kidnapping charges. They were dropped and he copped a hindering charge, maybe 100 hours community service, I think, and, and then sort of went on his merry way. And he went on to meet a woman named uh, Janelle Goodwin. She'd moved to the Harden-Kingsvale area in 1992 with her husband at the time, Stephen. They had two kids she had actually served in the army. She was a nurse in the army and she'd gotten a job at a local poultry farm after they'd moved to the region. And Robert Jeeves often stopped by this poultry farm to get chicken heads, which he used as, as fox bait, apparently. And somehow, despite that setting, you know, there was a romantic connection between the pair and 
things with Stephen ended. He moved away and they shared the kids. Janelle moved in with Robert Jeeves. He was actually with his wife, Anne, at this time too. She was living elsewhere in town with Robbie, their son. He was much younger. He was probably around 10 and they tried to have more kids but miscarried a number of times. So Robert had even had a, a vasectomy. It was reported but had it reversed after things kicked off with Janelle. Things didn't go too smoothly with them. They reportedly fought a lot. And on there was the 20th of July, 1993, it was a Sunday night, and the pair had been sort of plying themselves with bourbon at the, the Jeeves family farm. And according to Robert, they began to get fired up at one another and argue. Things escalated. They began hitting and, and scratching one another until somehow, at some stage, Janelle found herself staring down the barrel of a rifle and she was shot dead at point-blank range. So it was, it was a horrible accident, according to Robert Jeeves. They'd struggled, and apparently she pulled the trigger herself. Yet rather than call police after it happened, he went to bed, woke up the next day, went shopping for tractor parts, beer, whatever else he needed, came home and relaxed. Meanwhile, Janelle's body was left in a wheelbarrow out the back for two days before uh, Jeeves showed up at the police station and reported the accident. When the police showed up, Janelle was reportedly naked. Her ankles were bound to her neck. She was wrapped in a sheet. Robert Jeeves explained all of this strange behaviour afterwards was basically his panic uh, at, at, at the accident. So um, the autopsy results were pretty clear on how Janelle died. The contentious points that came up following forensic testing related to it, there was, there was a dent in her ring on, on her finger and it matched the front sight of the rifle and it would have made it quite difficult for her to sort of click the safety off and, and pull the trigger on herself, as, as Jeeves had suggested. Janelle also had a, a, a blood alcohol rating of 0.2 and she was also determined to be seven months pregnant when this happened. Robert Jeeves was arrested. He was charged with murder. By the time police inspected his place, uh, it had been pretty thoroughly cleaned up. His clothes had been washed from that night that he'd worn that night. They were drying in front of the fire and he cleaned his rifle. There was no casing found anywhere. There was no fingerprints. Blood had been seemingly hosed away. Uh, you know, I think the police reported at the time it was one of the best sort of cleanups they'd seen. So charges never stuck to, to Robert Jeeves for this. He was charged. He pleaded not guilty, and I think the magistrate actually just discharged the case. I don't know if it actually even went to trial, but it was sort of discharged due to insufficient evidence. But, um, look, he maintains his innocence in, in what happened uh, to this day. Wow. So Janelle's murder is still unsolved. Yeah. As you know, we hoped we could return to live shows in the second half of 2021, but the ever-changing landscape of lockdowns and restrictions is making it tricky. So if you have tickets already to our shows, please keep an eye on our Facebook and Instagram accounts where we have all the updates for you. And we'll definitely keep trying to get around the country when it's safe to do so. Thank you to patrons Jodie Crow, Emily Lumley, Sarah Bowley, Kay Node, Emma Livingston and Nicole White. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. 
Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the Internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. What were Amber's last movements? What do we know about what happened before she went missing? Well, I mean, the only reports we've got come from Robert and Ann Jeeves, so I think we have to keep that in mind. They were the last people to see her, and that happened at the Campbelltown Railway Station. So it was about some three hours' drive from, from where they lived. They said Amber was planning to catch the train to Mount Druitt to see her, her old man, uh, Jeff. He was seriously ill or, or at this time, and he was in the hospital, actually. So it was around 8.30... So they dropped her off. She was going to get the train. It was about a half an hour trip to go and see him. But apparently she left baby Royce. He would have been all of five or six months at this time. Uh, Apparently she left him with the Jeeves. After that, no one's seen or heard from Amber since. What we do know is that 15 minutes later, so around quarter to nine, her bank account was accessed. So there was a withdrawal made at an ATM somewhere in that vicinity around the Campbelltown train station, which is some kind of a lead. but. I think police were unable to substantiate who'd used the card. CCTV had been sort of looped over at the station by that time and uh, they couldn't determine, you know, if Amber was at the station or had boarded a train or anything like that. But the strange thing was that after this, the Jeeves had baby Royce for like two weeks before reporting Amber missing. And the usual things happened early in the investigation you know, the Jeeves obviously didn't didn't look too good, and uh, young young Robbie certainly got the impression that his his old man was in the crosshairs. But there was, you know, also the usual unreliable sightings and things like that, which we often see in, in early stages of cases like this. So there was a strike force set up. It was called Vilma, and it was headed up by a detective sergeant. There it was a pretty difficult task ahead of them. It, it was. Quite strange to them and, and many people since that have, that have heard the story that Amber was just willing to to hand over Royce and didn't take him to meet her, her ailing father. It was also a bit of a strange time for her to visit the hospital too because, you know, visiting hours were probably over or close to it by the time she would have gotten there. I think the train ride may have, may have been even longer than the drive. So it was sort of strange that they'd driven three hours just to drop her half an hour short of Mount Druid in Campbelltown, you know, at that time of night with an infant. The Jeeves claimed to have no idea where Amber was or what she had planned beyond the hospital visit. Police did search their their place, their their farmhouse, and they did see some items. I think there was maybe some pants and a knife, but 
there was no evidence that sort of connected them or, or substantiated even some of those previous allegations I think I mentioned like the videotaping and, and stuff like there was no videotapes or anything found but again their movements before and after this were also strange to say the least so it was a couple of days before Amber disappeared this would have been on the 3rd of June the chief stayed at a place called the Tarmor Motor Inn the south of Campbelltown 20 or 30 kilometres, so again, hours from their house in Kingsvale. Um, you know, we don't know why they were there. Um, but then again, on the, on the 9th, they brought some nails and a hammer from a hardware store in Mossvale, around an hour and a half from Tarmor Motor Inn, again, hours from their home, and they were reportedly sighted not long after this, driving along what was described as a lonely road, pulling a trailer along. Again, three days later, we saw them back at the Tarmore Inn, which was a place they really had no reason to kind of frequent. So a week later, they reported Amber missing uh, to the Harden Police Station. Okay, that's pretty disturbing. And now we've got Amber who is missing. In 2011, there's an inquest. So what's happened in those years in between before we talk about the inquest, Sean? Well, I don't think, you know, there was really a whole lot to go on. I think police had their suspicions and, you know, there was a pretty clear line that they were they were taking, you know, what was being suggested. But at the end of the day, there doesn't appear to be uh, enough evidence for any charges to be laid. There were other explanations and how, uh, how plausible they were, I'm not too sure. You know, the investigation definitely went on. Uh, you know, and in fact, I had, it was actually a, a police officer on the case who reached out to me, I won't name them, but they they reached out to me about it. You know, I think in these cases, police can often have a pretty good idea of where things are heading. It's just a matter of, of the evidence being there. The inquest happened in 2011 and mm. an extensive brief was handed over. And the coroner actually made reference to the problem of rumour mongering. That was mm. the terminology used that I read surrounding this case. One of the bits of evidence or statement that was presented was from a 17-year-old who told police in 2010, the year before the inquest, that they heard rumours that bikies had murdered Amber and the statement was, was read out to the inquest. That was one of them. There was there was a lot. There were several rumours like this that the coroner brought up. That one specifically was from a young guy. His name was Joel and he'd apparently been told by some local sort of drunkard named Podge that Robert Jeeves had paid to have Amber killed so that he could keep the baby. And apparently she was buried at a vineyard in, in Anvil in some reports, a lemon tree on the Jeeves property in, in others. There was another one from a guy who worked with Robert Jeeves, Adam Blundell. He was quite petulant with some of his answers and I think annoyed the coroner quite a bit when answering some of the the questions about the rumours, the one in reference to, to him was that he'd heard she'd been put through some kind of farm shredder or machinery. So just horrific stuff. There's just been a lot of flippant talk about it around town and, and people potentially hearing things and then writing it off as a joke or, you know, they were drunk or this person was drunk when they heard it and no one seemingly taking it all too seriously. You know, it's making me think a lot as we're talking about Amber about the case of Crystal Fraser who went missing around Pyramid Hill and Crystal yeah. Crystal was days away from giving birth to her baby and I know we get a lot of people who listen to the podcast talking about that case and that someone's obviously knows what happened yeah. independent of the person who is possibly responsible for Crystal's disappearance or death. But, yeah, it's just making me think so much of that case at the moment. 
I mean, you know it yourself where, you know, and it doesn't have to be about something as, as serious and, and heinous as this, but, you know, when you're, when you're on the ground, when you've got those boots on the ground in, in the town where you live, you hear about all of these little things that, uh, you know, that, that come about. I know in, in my hometown, it could just be little stuff about a, a new development going up or whatever it might be. And it's it really is hard to believe that something this serious that's gone on for that length of time before that, that inquest came around, that, yeah, these that this rumour mill didn't eventuate from somewhere and that someone doesn't know something more than they're leading on. Yeah, hard, hard to... Uh, it's hard to make peace with that. So what did the inquest determine about what happened to Amber or probably happened to Amber, Sean? When he's finding, it was that the coroner Mitchell said that although that suspicion was there, the Jeeves appeared to have intended to use Amber as a surrogate mother. He sort of didn't go beyond that and he found that Amber had most likely been murdered by homicide or misadventure. He didn't say how. Uh, but he did indicate that her body was possibly disposed of down a disguised or a disused uh, mine shaft, apparently in that Tarmor region that I mentioned, the motor in, uh, apparently that in sort of at the, at the foothills of some mountain ranges and there was apparently a lot of sort of old mine shafts and things around there that he indicated might be uh, fit for, for the purpose of disposing of a body. Were there any follow-up actions from the inquest? I think just that lack of, of sort of physical evidence, you know, the fact that there's just not enough there, it's been quite prohibitive in that sense of anything really progressing beyond strong words from officers who might have a pretty strong theory on what might have happened. Are Anne and Robert Jeeves still in Young? Like, what what are they doing now? Yeah, as I understand, they're still in, in the region, um, not Young specifically, but around, yeah, out of town in that area. And, yeah, so, of course, I mean, they are really important people in this investigation because they are the people who last saw Amber and mm. reported her missing, so they're always going to remain a focus, I guess, in, in, in this case. Mm. So for Amber's family, I mean, this must be horrific, just not to know what happened, going through an inquest, hearing that the probable cause was her being murdered or death by misadventure. Have the family been maintaining a pressure about finding out what happened to her? Well, I think that's... The hardest part with these sorts of cases, isn't it? And at the end of the day, she's still missing. You know, no one's, they haven't found her. There's, there's been, you know, a finding that of what's most likely happens to her and people seem to have some pretty good theories, generally speaking, on what may have happened to her. But it's still really, uh, you know, ambiguous loss, isn't it? They don't, they don't know. There's no end result. And in their sort of position, uh, it would be just very difficult to sort of go on living a normal life but pushing at the same time some people in those sort of situations they are very vocal about it and they almost become you know they talk a lot about it they join communities of that nature and almost become advocates and and for other people they can't go down that road and, and take it in that direction amber's family um, Rosen and, and melissa have done current affair 60 minute stories and things like that and you know just at, at, at what point do you not give up obviously you'd never give up but uh, it would just at what stage do you sort of have to live to start living your own life again and there is an active reward out for information about amber's disappearance so yeah. hopefully someone will eventually call crime stoppers and as we discover in in this podcast with the passage of years someone 
maybe talks, you know, their allegiances aren't as strong to people, you know, they might hear something or know something and just have been too scared. So hopefully that's what happens for Amber. Yeah, and those allegiances change, things change in those you know, those little tight-knit communities can be funny in that sense sometimes. It's often the smallest piece of, of information that might help the police get that last bit of evidence they, they need. $100,000 reward, as you said. Yeah, I mean, even back in the day, if someone remembered seeing Amber back at that time and it doesn't seem particularly important, just report the information to, to Crime Stoppers. Thank you to Sean McMahon from True Blue Crime. His co-host on that show is Chloe Allen. And thank you to patrons Rebecca Petty-Sampson, Natalie, Carolyn Stather, Sam Smart, Breran Kirkbridge and Miss Vic, my beautiful Miss Vic. I've added my beautifuls because she is a beautiful friend of mine. And incidentally, and this is a coincidence, Miss Vic is featured in a book that I have coming out in a couple of weeks' time. I wasn't going to talk about it yet, but then when Miss Vic popped up, I thought I should. It's my first true crime book. It's called CSI Told You Lies. CSI Told You Lies. There's a link in the show notes if you would like to pre-order that book. It's about some of the biggest criminal cases in Australia and the forensic pathologists who conducted the post-mortem examinations in those cases. You'll be hearing more about that in the future. Don't worry. Thank you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime. We'll be back next week. This has been another Smartfella production in conjunction with the Acast Creator Network. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Australian True Crime, the nation's leading independent true crime podcast, is hitting the road with our live show. We're coming to Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane this July and tickets will be available starting May 10th at 9.30am sharp. They sold out in two hours last time, so do not dilly-dally. We know the suburbs of Australia are teeming with some of the most intriguing and chilling true crime stories the world has ever heard. Don't miss the chance to dive deeper and get involved with a live Q&A. With over a million and a half downloads monthly, these tickets will sell out. So keep an eye on our social media pages and check the podcast bio for direct links to purchase yours as soon as they're released on Friday, May 10. I can't wait to see you there.